Viking Voyages, Episode 6, Antarctica. Debbie Wiseman reads from the fictional diary of English musician and piano teacher Elizabeth Drinkwater. Dimitri and Vonnie are having a row. It's all very dramatic, flapping arms, pointing and raised voices... It is almost invariably finished before it has started, and neither bear a grudge. I actually think they quite enjoy their arguments. They are so different from Francois and me. If we have diverging opinions, one of us goes quiet, and the other feels guilty. Almost immediately, one of us gives way and apologises, because neither of us can stand tension in our relationship or anywhere else for that matter. I don't know if that's a good thing or not. So here we are, standing outdoors in Ushuaia, Argentina, near the most southern part of the planet, surrounded by forests, lakes and glaciers. One couple on honeymoon, the other taking a holiday before their wedding in Buenos Aires. All of us embarking on an Antarctic cruise. It ought to be idyllic, but oblivious to the surroundings, Vonnie and Dimitri cannot agree on what they want to do. Dimitri wants to eat and drink, Vonnie wants to go for a walk. This altercation is pointless. We all know that Vonnie will win the day. Are you serious, Dimitri? We've just stepped off a plane and you want to eat again? We're supposed to be soaking up the culture. Isn't that the point of being in this place? It's not just always about eating, Dimitri. Elizabeth, you and Francois want to get a breath of fresh air, don't you? I nod in agreement. I don't want to prolong the altercation. Dimitri smiles. He knows when to back down gracefully. We stroll around the town, its waterfront crammed tightly with fishing boats, watching fellow tourists as they prepare for their Antarctic expeditions. Shops and stalls sell souvenirs, paintings, woodwork, textiles, leather and ceramics. We stop at a coffee shop. I ask if they might serve an Earl Grey tea. How terribly, terribly British, laughs Dimitri in a cod upper-crust English accent. Turning to Francois, he says, A nice cup of English breakfast for you, Beaumarchais? I have overheard Dimitri using this nickname, Beaumarchais, for Francois a few times now, and I still do not understand it. The two men have obviously worked closely in the past, and their friendship stretches back many years. Sometimes, though, I feel excluded from their conversations, left out of their confidential relationship. I decide to intrude. Beaumarchais? No, Elizabeth, you have misunderstood, misheard my terrible French, Dimitri assures me. I call Francois Bonmarché. Translated, it means cheap. 
We call him Monsieur Bon Marché because he cannot hold his alcohol. One vodka, he is like a teenager. Others, no names mentioned, have been known to be reckless and impulsive when inebriated, replies Francois, looking knowingly at Dimitri. As we reach a hilltop that overlooks Ushuaia, the view silences us all. We can see our ship patiently waiting to bear us to Antarctica. I think this is one of the most wonderful sights I have ever witnessed, yet it is tinged with a certain poignancy. When I reflect on the early whalers and fishermen who must have lost their lives thousands of miles away from their homes in these freezing waters, and the intrepid polar explorers who set out on their perilous travels never to return, I realise that this place must also have many ghosts. This beautiful ocean has many sad stories to tell. I cannot help but wonder at the inquisitive nature of humans, their need to explore. Perhaps it is because, in the process of travel, we can find out as much about ourselves as the places we visit.
Named after the British explorer, Francis Drake, the Drake Passage is a stretch of water which has a reputation for being the roughest in the world. This is where the South American continent meets the Antarctic, where two oceans collide. We have been warned before the crossing that the seas could be rough. I wake early and make my way out to the sun deck to grab some fresh air before breakfast. Settling back in the lounger, I am pleasantly surprised to see blue skies and relatively calm seas. Vonnie appears, carrying two glasses, which she sets down on the table beside me. To my surprise, she produces a hip flask. Here you go, Elizabeth, she says as she pours a measure of clear liquid into each glass. What's that? I'm hoping it's tonic water, though I suspect it's not. I call it the stabiliser. Peppermint schnapps and rum. It's the best thing for seasickness. I've never heard of this particular remedy before. I politely decline Dr. Vonnie's offer. I have enough stimulation from the view. Besides, I prefer muesli, fruit and coffee at breakfast. Vonnie shrugs and downs her drink and the drink intended for me. Whatever, honey. I'm not taking any chances. Vonnie need not have worried. We could not have asked for a better crossing. Francois and Dimitri have opted to attend a lecture in the onboard theatre. Vonnie and I prefer to stay out on the sun deck, looking out for whales and dolphins, and watching birds as they hover over the ship. There is something utterly life-affirming about standing and gazing upon the ocean observing the rise and fall of the waves as their crests are blown into plumes of spray. As the salty wind hits the ship, my lungs fill with fresh air, my cheeks glow with rosy good health. Vonnie's cheeks are glowing too, partly from the fresh air and partly, I would have thought, from the effects of the double stabiliser. I am reminded of the rhyme of the ancient mariner by Samuel Taylor Coleridge, the thrilling, ghostly poem I studied when I was a schoolgirl. Swiftly, swiftly flew the ship, yet she sailed softly too. Sweetly, sweetly blew the breeze, on me alone it blew. There are many composers who have written music conjuring up the power and changing personality of the sea. My favourite piece of this nature is by Rimsky-Korsakov, who, as a young officer in the Navy, sailed the oceans, discovering the perils and excitement of sea voyage. In his epic, romantic masterpiece, Scheherazade, he describes the sea and Sinbad's ship the rise and fall of the orchestra perfectly painting the majestic ocean, gulls struggling against a gale, flashes of white on grey, 
waves surging like moving mountains.
we are making good progress across Drake Passage. Suddenly, I catch sight of land, my first glimpse of Antarctica. Guests start to appear on the sun deck to take pictures of their first sight of icebergs, visible on the starboard side of the ship. I had always imagined icebergs to be towering white hunks of snow-covered ice. But no. Here they come in a myriad of hues, bathed in sunshine. Translucent, sparkling blues formed from particle-free seawater. Some shine like sapphire. Others are as murky as frozen puddles of mud. Rib boats bring us to the shore on a high tide. When we reach land, we are rewarded with a view of some of the most spectacular scenery imaginable. Half Moon Bay is a glittering gem amongst these island treasures. Its serrated, creviced cliffs, home to large colonies of penguins, terns and gulls. A penguin committee welcomes us, stamping little footsteps on the ground. One of them waddles uncertainly. He looks just like Dimitri, Vonnie wryly observes. We stretch our legs and to our delight, we discover a group of elephant seals on the beach. I survey the scenery around us black volcanic ash dramatically contrasting with the pure white snow. We sit on large rocks at the waterfront. I look at the elephant seals, these massive animals who, it seems, see no necessity to move. Sometimes a sleepy one lifts his head and blinks at us. Occasionally, one scoops a little sand over his body with his front flippers to alleviate the warmth of the sun. Others, fast asleep, snore loudly. As I watch this wonder of nature in this stark wilderness, miles from civilization, I smile to myself. Life feels good. Many of my ghosts of yesteryear have been vanquished once and for all. Once back on board the ship, preparations are underway for travel to our next destination, the Falkland Islands. Francois and Dimitri repair to the bar to chat about saving the planet, perhaps the universe. Vonnie and I are somewhat less ambitious, opting for afternoon tea and cake. Inevitably, we talk about the new men in our lives. I am fortunate, I say. Francois not only loves me, but he is also my best friend. I trust him implicitly. I ask Vonnie frankly about her forthcoming marriage to Dimitri. I would hope that by this time, her fourth marriage, she might have figured things out. Vonnie confides in me. Elizabeth, honey, I am seduced not by looks, but by intelligence. 
Trouble is, I equate intelligence with decency. In my last marriage, I found out just how wrong I could be. It was a complete disaster. It became apparent after I told my husband he had three months to show me he was actively looking for a job that he believed I was going to support him for the rest of his life. I kicked him out on day 61. Yeah, I was counting the days. It was that bad. And then he started telling me that it was me who had changed. Dimitri is totally different. He's a decent man, a proper gentleman. What do you think he and Francois are up to now? I ask. They seem very furtive. Don't ask me, honey, shrugs Vonnie. All that highfalutin scientific stuff leaves me cold. They're welcome to it. If Dimitri even begins to talk science, I switch off. I imagine they're discussing global warming, measuring glaciers, or maybe counting seals. I was wondering whether they might be up to something a little more cloak and dagger. I confide in Vonnie. Our next stop is the Falkland Islands. I've heard that the British Navy keeps nuclear submarines there, armed with missiles, which could potentially be deployed at any time. That's Dimitri's area of expertise. Elizabeth, I think you've been reading too many spy novels, smiles Vonnie. Our husbands are just two retired, worn-out old professors, not the men from uncle. She's probably right. We meet up with Dimitri and Francois for a drink before dinner. Vonnie orders a glass of white wine at the bar, adding that she would like it shaken, not stirred. I shoot her a mock withering glance. The men just look confused. The following day, Britain's isolated colonial outpost, Port Stanley, appears, set in a wild archipelago in the South Atlantic. Often wind-lashed, today it is pleasantly temperate. We anchor in the deep water of Blanco Bay, just north of Stanley. Port Stanley is only a few blocks wide, spread out east to west, along three miles of the south bank of its harbour. All the town's sites are within walking distance. Colourful houses, well-tended gardens and chubby gnomes leave visitors in little doubt which flag flies here. A little to the west is Liberation Memorial, situated on Thatcher Drive. The Iron Lady is something of a hero in these parts. As the four of us walk towards the memorial, a shiny Range Rover pulls up alongside us, driven by a good-looking young soldier in a smart uniform. He gets out and greets us. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Falkland Islands. I've been commanded by the Brigadier to convey you to meet him at Mount Pleasant. I had only briefly looked at my guidebook before we disembarked, 
but I feel sure that Mount Pleasant is some distance away. Before I can ask, the driver confirms this. We should be there in approximately one hour. This seems to me like a long, unnecessary journey, quite apart from the fact that I don't know why the brigadier, whoever he is, would want to meet us anyway. I look at Francois and Dimitri. They do not seem remotely surprised. In fact, they almost look like they were expecting this. I'm beginning to worry. Vonnie looks the young driver up and down approvingly and sweetly asks, Can't the brigadier come here to meet us? Francois coughs in embarrassment. Our driver politely ignores the question and opens the rear door of the Range Rover. Dimitri places a reassuring hand on Vonnie's shoulder and nudges her gently forwards. Obviously not, grumbles Vonnie as we climb into the car. The terrain looks similar to parts of Scotland. The narrow road weaves between low-lying rocky outcrops and small shallow lakes. More to distract myself from this strange situation than anything else, I pull my trusty guidebook from my bag and randomly alight on the fact that there are no roundabouts or traffic lights in all the Falklands and that the speed limit is 40 miles an hour, which evidently can be much exceeded by military personnel. I put away my guidebook and grip Francoise's arm more tightly. When we arrive at Mount Pleasant, we are flagged through security. Our driver leaps out of the car, opens the door and salutes. We are met by an impressive looking welcoming party, comprised, we have been informed by our driver, of officers and local dignitaries. Their uniforms are neatly pressed, shoes gleaming in the late afternoon light. I don't take in any of their names when I am introduced. I'm struggling to get to grips with the surreal situation. Brigadier someone, Colonel someone else. Robotically, I shake their outstretched hands. Vonnie, on the other hand, is having a grand old time glad-handing the officers. She winks at me. She likes a man in uniform. A small army band strikes up playing rousing renditions of the French and Russian national anthems in turn, whilst all stand rigidly to attention. The brigadier walks forward and greets Francois and Dimitri warmly. Welcome to the Falkland Islands, gentlemen. What a privilege to welcome two distinguished Nobel Prize winners to these shores. I look wide-eyed at Vonnie. On this windswept, remote piece of tarmac on the far side of the world, we are dumbfounded, incredulous, lost for words. Our two men have quite some explaining to do.
We have arrived in Buenos Aires. The shock of the revelation has subsided, but since we left the Falklands, I've been pushing Francois to tell me about the Nobel Prize and why he hid the fact that he won it. 
Over breakfast, Francois finally tries to explain the work that he and Dimitri have been doing. We use small amounts of radioactive materials called radio tracers that are injected into the bloodstream, inhaled or swallowed. Nuclear medicine imaging provides unique information that cannot be obtained using other procedures and offers the potential to identify disease in its earliest stages. That is how, why, Dimitri and I received the Nobel Prize. I am bewildered. Why didn't you tell me? It would have explained why you are so well known, received so graciously wherever we go. I can't believe I never found out. Although it is our names on the prize, there were so many more talented and resourceful people involved in our work, explains Francois. Research and development is very much a team effort. It is disingenuous to single out individuals for praise. More than anything, I didn't want you to think that I was some overinflated superhero of science. Dimitri and I just worked hard and hit some good luck along the way. <laughs> Laughing, I throw my arms around him. Superhero of science, I thought you were a spy. Francois chuckles. Sorry to disappoint. He gently disengages himself and kisses me lightly on the forehead. Enough spy talk. Let's go and explore the city. That's what we're here for after all. Rejoining Vonnie and Dimitri, we make our way through chaotic traffic in the vibrant capital city, arriving at a colonial hall advertising tango classes for beginners. All welcome. Francois and I took a few tango lessons while we were in Paris in preparation for this honeymoon experience. I have butterflies in my stomach and feel quite sick in nervous anticipation. We will be under the instruction of a pair of Argentine tango teachers, Pedro and Sofia. They greet us formally, attired entirely in black. They look dominant and intimidating. Why is it, I wonder, that so many musicians are terrible dancers? You would think that after all the years of hard training, I would be able to coordinate my movements with simple musical rhythms. When it comes to remembering dance steps, I am frustratingly inept. Despite this, I am determined to learn how to tango. It looks so passionate, so romantic. In South America, dance means so much more than just a performance. It's a gathering of like-minded people and a fusion of traditions. A couple of days ago, when we visited Montevideo, we were introduced to Candombe, a drumming and dance spectacular, a rousing celebration, a fiesta on the streets. Its rhythm felt very African. Thank you. 
Candombe is all about pulsating percussion, beating out a complex, energetic dance. Its musicians are tired in bird of paradise costumes. Powerful, emotional and invigorating. It's truly a sight and sound to behold. Back in Buenos Aires, in direct contrast, Argentine tango looks grim and melodramatic, all fishnet stocking cliches. Tango is challenging because it has no basic steps and feels wholly improvised. But beyond the many difficulties, there is tantalizing elation. The more a tango dancer learns, the more humble he or she must be. Every change of foot is led. The man must be clear but unpredictable. His partner has to respond with alacrity and concentration as each of the 100 tango movements can be included in any sequence. For the inhabitants of Buenos Aires, tango is the deepest expression of their identity. It is so much more than just a dance. Pedro, our teacher, lines us all up. Some couples have arrived together. Those who are alone team up with regular attendees. Some girls are partnered with girls because today there are not enough men. Everyone looks stylish. Recorded music blares out. And as Pedro counts, Francois and I stutter into what we hope will vaguely resemble a tango. Bonnie has informed us that she is an accomplished tango dancer. She has been giving Dimitri lessons. Brashly confident, she is also fiercely competitive. As we start to tango, it is clear that Bonnie and Dimitri have a completely different style to every other couple on the floor. Their movements are all formal, distanced ballroom tango, upper bodies swaying and dipping, heads thrust backwards. They lunge about dangerously whilst all around move in close embrace. Vonnie can be heard counting loudly above the music as poor Dimitri, all left feet, tries to follow in vain. This is too much for Pedro. No, 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 shouts our teacher, clapping his hands aggressively. The music abruptly stops. Couples grind to a halt simultaneously, wobbling like a row of precariously upended dominoes. There is a tense silence. Pedro walks purposefully across the floor, confronting Vonnie. No, lady, this is not a tango, he barks. Tango should be profound. A connection, 
a meditation, a place where the body can discover peace, serenity. Your tango is all cha-cha-cha, poodles and feathered parasols. Vonnie's eyes blaze. I can see this is not going to be a friendly exchange. I have been dancing tango for 40 years, young man, retorts Vonnie. Don't tell me how to dance. I'll have you know I learnt tango from Ginger Rogers's sister. Look at you all shuffling around like a bunch of miserable stuffed mannequins. Dance should be all about joy, lightness of the feet, colour and movement. Your tango looks more like zombies. Pedro looks at the floor and pauses. Ginger Rogers was an only child. Vonnie squares up to the teacher and draws herself up to her full height. You are a very, very rude man. I don't need this, this, this. Come on, Dimitri, collect your things. We're leaving. See you on the ship, Elizabeth, in the bar. With that, Vonnie makes a dramatic departure, sweeping theatrically out of the ballroom, pushing a helpless Dimitri ahead of her. With a final flourish, she half pirouettes in the doorway and delivers her exit line. It was Ginger's stepsister! The room reverberates with the force of the slamming door. There is a pause, punctured after a few seconds with a ripple of nervous laughter from the assembled company. Pedro undeterred by the volcanic interruption to his class, claps his hands to indicate we should continue. When I link arms with Francois to resume our dance, I feel totally cared for, protected. Tango is a dialogue of limbs, intertwined bodies, caressing the floor and each other, a moving seduction, all suggestion and response, question and answer.
Rio de Janeiro, the final stop on our journey. Dimitri has been particularly looking forward to arriving here. He has secured tickets for a football match and excitedly tells us that we are very fortunate. These tickets, he says, are like gold dust. I know that South Americans are even more passionate about their football than their music. And as we approach the stadium, passions indeed seem to be running very high. We are swept along by a sea of fans, all declaring their allegiance from the colour of their shirts. Flamengo are to play Fluminense in what is known as the Fla Flu Derby. Dimitri tells me that both teams come from this city and share this stadium, the Maracanã, which has been host to a World Cup final. He is very keen to educate me in what he calls the beautiful game. I know next to nothing about football, but both Francois and Dimitri enjoy watching it, and Vonnie loves the colourful spectacle, so I'm happy to join in. It's a new experience, well outside my usual recreational sphere, so I embrace it happily. High up in the stands, I look down at the footballers below. They look like ants at this distance. Waves of noise sweep the stadium as the game ebbs and flows, erupting when there is a goal scored. The game is a ballet of dazzling skill, colour and drama. I start to drift away in my own thoughts, miles from the action. This is the last day of our honeymoon. What a truly wonderful few weeks and months this has been, exploring the world, making new friends, finding my Francois. I squeeze his hand tightly. He puts his arm gently around my shoulders, kissing me affectionately. They say that all good things must come to an end. I am not sure this is true. It feels more like a beginning. When I am away, I could not feel more at home because good company is one of the most important things in life. Who knows what the future will hold for any of us? Who can tell what is just around the corner? All we can do is live for the moment, squeezing as many experiences from each day as we possibly can. I have so many memories from this year that I can honestly say I feel renewed and revived. I can't wait for our next adventure, the next voyage. As Vonnie would say, it's been a ball. Viking Voyages was narrated by Debbie Wiseman. It was written by Justin Pearson 
and the editing and sound production was by Mike Brown at Original Sound. The music in this episode was Winter, the first movement, Allegro, from Concerto No. 4 in F minor, The Four Seasons, composed by Antonio Vivaldi, performed by Gerd Uwe Klein and Ensemble Chan Yang. The Sea and Sinbad's Ship, the first movement from Scheherazade, composed by Nikolai Andreevich Rimsky-Korsakov, performed by David Nolan with the Philharmonia Orchestra, conducted by Enrique Batis. Overture from Ruslan and Ludmila, composed by Mikhail Ivanovich Glinka, performed by the National Symphony Orchestra, conducted by John Owen Edwards. Flor de Lino, composed by Hector Stamponi, performed by the Locrian Ensemble of London. La Comparsita, composed by Gerardo Rodriguez, performed by Caroline Adamite and Julian Riem. And the opening and closing music was Den Reisender, The Traveller, composed by Debbie Wiseman, performed by the National Symphony Orchestra, conducted by the composer. <laughs>